The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 23rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Martin Wintercorn has resigned. Wintercorn is going. Head of Volvo put together a not entirely successful video yesterday. Tie, not always, knotted up to the top. Eyes darting back and forth, reading the teleprompter. Little bit sweaty. Not that German Elon we've come to expect. Here, let's play a little bit of that apology video. I am aware that many things have now been called into question, and I understand that. But it would be wrong to cast suspicion on the honest, hard work of so many because of the terrible mistakes made by only a few. Now, at this point, at least in my video, it conked out. But luckily, I'm a fluent German speaker, and I will provide you the translation to some of the rest of it. We heartfeltly apologize to all of our customers, our dealers, our shareholders, our employees, and who else? To the clouds. We're sorry to the clouds. We wish to assure you, be you cumulus, cumulonimbus, that we are, like many of you, serious about helping the environment. Did I do good? Did that sound good when I said serious? Did that humanize me? Okay, good. We, I shall go on. You may remember that Volkswagen, a while ago, invented a word. A word so delightful and fun to say that it just took off. That word was, of course, Fafignugen. Okay, it sounds a little different when I say it in the original German, more guttural. But to address this current violation of trust, we are introducing a new word. Flupflapspuen. Flupflapspuen means regarding, with great generosity and forgiveness, an example of horrible corporate malfeasance, just out of the goodness of your heart. I'll give you an example. GE poisoned rivers. Well, now I might buy a different manufacturer's convection oven. But you know what? Flupflapspuen. What the heck? GE, I can't be mad at you. Or yeah, the NFL covered up years of concussion research to the detriment of their own players. And while I normally would consider that an immoral action, floop flap spewing, let's go bears, am I right? In closing, Volkswagen, we're fun-loving, da, da, da. Remember that commercial? Da, da, da. Remember the Volkswagen Beetle? It's like a pet that lives in your garage. Don't think particulates in the atmosphere when you think of Volkswagen. Think da, da, da. You love the VW bug. Think of this thing more as a, a bug in the system, and maybe you can find some floop flap spewing in your heart to forgive us. I'm fired. I'm fired, aren't I? I'm going to be fired, aren't I? And on the show today, I spiel about corporate governance and rules, rules, rules. And we'll discuss the issue of black juror exclusion, which is a serious legal issue for which there are few good solutions. It is important. It's discouraging. So that's why I'm going to make it up to you right now. I'm going to give you a legal development that's encouraging and that's not that serious, but it's kind of a win for anyone who's ever blown out a candle or worn a hat with a thin elastic strap. Happy birthday to all of us. Da, da, da.
In a bold overturning of 80 years of copyright enforcement, a California judge today ruled that the song Happy Birthday to You is in the public domain. Though Warner Chapel Music bought the rights to the song, turns out those rights should never have been sold, the judge said. The 1935 copyright should have extended only to specific arrangements of the song, and that every time a movie producer paid for the song to be included in a film or a documentarian cut out a happy birthday scene for fear of having to pay for the use of the song, all of that was an error. It is a huge win for filmmakers in general and For a filmmaker in particular, she's Jen Nelson. She is the documentary filmmaker behind working title Happy Birthday Movie. But now, today, Jen, maybe you have to call it Happy Birthday dot 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 the triumph. (laughs) I liked Happy Birthday Suit. (laughs) Somebody came up with that one. That was pretty good. I liked that. (laughs) Update us on what exactly the court ruled. The court ruled that the copyright to Happy Birthday to You is invalid. So Warner Chapel does not have ownership of the uh, Happy Birthday song. So when you were last on, we talked about new evidence that you had uncovered. Did that play into the decision? Actually, the judge focused on our earlier arguments from the 1935 registration, the copyright registration. So even though that the smoking gun evidence was very helpful and sort of building the narrative that we had already suggested, the judge ultimately decided to focus on the 1935 copyright registration. This is like, because you are a a litigant in this case, but you're also making the documentary about the movie, so it's like the serial podcast if Adnan were Sarah Koenig. You both won and are presenting the story. Uh, Has that been complicated? Well, yes, the story's become a bit meta in style, and it, and it certainly becomes becomes complicated. But as as you know, a filmmaker, you have sort of a beginning point, and you might not know the exact ending, and you end up on this this journey that takes you in all sorts of directions. And um, so, in that sense, it's been a true documentary experience. What do you think this will mean? What will this mean for the movies we see, the documentaries, the news we watch? How will this change things, do you think? Well, this is a very exciting victory for everybody because we get to use the song however we want it, whenever we want it, without having to pay a license fee for it. And you will see it more in movies. You will see it more in documentaries. Who knows? You might even get sick of the song. And it should belong to everybody. I mean, it's the people's song. It never should have been owned by anybody in the first place. So it's where it should rightfully be. And finally, will you set your sights on Old Man River? Is there another song that we could just uh, take out of or put into the public domain? You seem to have a good track record on this. (laughs) There might be a few other songs that, that... that are questionable. So I I think my lawyers are looking into that, actually. Oh, wow. All right, I have a list of a couple other ones. You ready? Okay. Frosty the Snowman, not in the public domain. Santa Claus is Coming to Town, not in the public domain. (laughs) Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, not in the public domain. Uh, White Christmas, not in the public domain. And The Little Drummer Boy, which is not in the public domain, but maybe limiting plays of Little Drummer Boy is a good thing for society. (laughs) Wow, so you've done your homework. Just on the Christmas end of things, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> I worry about carolers facing these suits. Who will speak for the carolers? Well, I have a friend who's trying to write the most famous Christmas song in the world. We talked about doing a happy birthday Christmas song because it is about 
birthdays anyway. <laughs> well, if she wants it to go viral, I think the internet has taught us that have an element of a rat with a piece of pizza involved, and then people will sing that song. Yeah, what's up? The Pope, the rat, and happy birthday all in one day. <laughs> oh, it's a great day. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> You know why the to-do list gets out of control? Because it's not called the ta-ta list. Then it would have the a little bit of the, a frisson of accomplishment. Ta-ta, just did it. Did away with it. Nah. But it's the to-do list. There's so little, so little time, so much to-do. But there's stamps.com. You can get out of going to the post office via stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your computer and printer. They'll send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package. This is a digital scale. It's digital. You don't have to weigh it against a little metal dram on the one side. It just tells you how much the thing is. Then you print the postage right from your computer. Then you give it to the, you slap it on the envelope and you give it to the mail carrier and you are done. So right now you could use my promo code, the gist for a special offer. It's a four week trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. A new case the Supreme Court will be considering the next term is Foster v. Humphrey. It is about black juror bias, excluding black people, African-Americans from jurors. It's actually a much bigger issue than even the Supreme Court is taking on, as Dax Devlin Ross has been on this show to talk about. A few months ago, after reporting in the uh, Virginia Quarterly Review, he went to North Carolina, found some pretty egregious examples. And if you just look at the proportion of jurors that are white and that are black, it doesn't at all reflect the proportion of our society that's black. Well, Dax is back. We're going to talk about this Supreme Court case, and we're going to talk about the issues. How are you, Dax? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back again to talk. Absolutely. Can you tell us, I guess we let's, let's start by the big picture. African-Americans, 14% or so of the population, what percentage of jurors are they? Oh, God, I don't think there's any clear-cut data around that, and that's part of the challenge right now. There's this kind of scattershot. You have work that obviously was done in North Carolina, which I, you know, I was able to, you know, dig up, but that wasn't work that I had done. It was done by some Michigan State law professors, and there's been some work done in Louisiana that shows some pretty egregious proportions in terms of I think three to one odds of uh, uh, in terms of white black, uh, you know, making it onto a trial. So and so a you white have person three times more likely. Three to times land more likely, than a exactly. And in North Carolina, it was around two two to one likelihood. So if two to one is okay with you, fine. But three to one is pretty egregious. But those are the ones that we have a handle on and. This just isn't really, that really is only scratching the surface because we don't know what other jurisdictions are doing. So what are the facts that the Supreme Court will be hearing in the Foster v. Humphrey case? Um, the, the Foster v. Humphrey case, as I understand it at least, is, you know, first of all, it's important to note that this is a case that, you know, that's, you know, nearly 30 years old. I mean, this is a, originally was decided back in the, the late 1980s. So Justice. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and this has been in the, the pipeline of the courts for, for all that time, pretty much. It's, 
you know, his, his lawyers have been filing for appeals, you know, habeas, habeas appeals. But the point of the matter is that, you know, here is a young black man. He was 18 at the time, and he was accused of and convicted of killing a, a white woman in, in the state of Georgia. He was convicted of that, obviously, and he was also sentenced to die. It was later found out, many, many years later, that the prosecutors, after the notes were turned over, prosecutors had excluded all of the eligible, when we talk about eligible black jurors, there were four of them. And moreover, that in those juror notes that those prosecutors maintained, there were highlights next to, or those names were highlighted, those four black jurors were highlighted. Moreover, there was a statement at the end of the trial, when the sentencing phase in which the prosecutor made a statement, something to the effect of, about ghettos and, and wanting to make sure that we don't we have to we have to send we have to send a message to to the people living in the ghettos that this is not going to be tolerated i'm paraphrasing but that is mm-hmm, the extent mm-hmm. of what it was said so those are the facts of these murder white woman black man jurors excluded the perception or at least the the, the perceived notion is that those black folks were excluded because of their race and mm-hmm. that is the a question that has been in, in dispute uh for the last 30 years okay so this is rare in that they chronicle their racial, at least being aware of the race of the jurors. Mm-hmm. It probably goes on all the time where the prosecutors know not to even make that note. It's racial consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the question of whether or not racial consciousness equals racial bias and discrimination, I think, is one that is really one of the reasons that I imagine the Supreme Court has taken this on, because I, I, there are other cases in which there are juror notes that have been found that are even more blatantly discriminatory. You came I, across some yes. in your reporting. In the North Carolina case, there was actually one of the trial, one of the cases that I looked at in North Carolina, there were juror notes in which the prosecutor wrote down black wino and, you know, lives in a black neighborhood. And so these were these were explicitly discriminatory statements, whereas highlighting the black jurors or potential jurors and noting that they are black or African-American, the question of whether that's discriminatory in and of itself or is that evidence of intending to keep them off of a jury is the kind of question that needs to be answered. So what did they do in your North Carolina case when you came across insults to black people and the juror and well, the uh, a prosecutor's notes? Well, in those in those cases, and that's sort of what's still happening in, in North Carolina, those were the Racial Justice Act uh, cases. And those were based around a law that has since been repealed by the governor of North Carolina. But those were part of four cases that were heard. And they were all heard by the same judge, Judge Gregory Weeks, who's now retired. And there, in all those cases, he found that there was intentional discrimination. Statistically, he also found evidence that went beyond the statistics in the case of actual notes. The question, the issue with North Carolina now is that all of those cases are being appealed, and it's been about nine months, 10 months almost, and the uh, Supreme Court in North Carolina still has yet to actually issue its ruling on whether or not you know, those decisions will be uh, repealed. Even if Foster wins his case, how much of a triumph will it be or how much of a correction of this uh, societal ill will it be? Because you could see the Supreme Court issuing a ruling as they do with, say, the Voting Act, that unless it's, okay, we won't allow exclusion of black jurors if you could explicitly prove it with written down notes. And so they won't go on just, if you show me the statistics and you show me that white people are three times as likely to get on a jury, that might not be good enough. You have to have the the racism written down. And what I know about racism in 2015 is people aren't writing it down anymore. Yeah. (laughs) So this is the thing. I actually... I have somewhat of an optimistic perspective because my my view is that there have been a number of cases that have happened since the Batson. So this is the this is all stemming from 1986, about the you know the, the Batson uh, the Batson decision, which was sort of 
at the time, it was believed to be the sort of seminal decision that was going to really roll back the discrimination that was happening at the, the jury selection stage. It did not do that, mm-hmm. right? So there were a series of cases that have happened since then that have come to the Supreme Court. One was Millerell versus Dretke that happened in the mid two thousands, in which the Supreme Court said that it could look outside. We could look outside of the you know the sort of statements made at the trial and look at some of the evidence. In that case, it was jury shuffling. They were moving jurors around to get sort of the kind of juror pool they wanted. There was also evidence of a of a hand book that was being used by prosecutors in, in Dallas at the time. Those were pieces of evidence that the court was able to take into consideration in making its decision. Another case came along a few years later saying that, you know what, you don't have to prove explicit, deliberate. You just need to find that it's substantially, a substantial you know, level of proof to indicate some kind of discrimination. So I think at this time around, it seems as though maybe the court is ready to make I would hope at least a stronger statement around what's going to be allowable during the peremptory challenges, because that's where this all lives, because each prosecutor and the defense are allowed a certain number of peremptory challenges. Those are challenges that they can make to potential potential generals that will not be questioned. They don't have to give their reason why. No reason why. So that's going to have to, and some people, I think, observers think that maybe there will be some modification to this process. And we can go back to what Justice Thurgood Marshall said back in the Batson trial and in his concurrence, which was that, listen, we really need to ask ourselves, do we need to have this peremptory strike system at all? Because if you look at, you know, if you look at England, they actually have a random jury selection process. They actually do it by randomization. I'm not saying that's necessarily better, but yeah. there are alternatives out there to having a prosecutor provided and a, and, a, and a defense attorney provided with a certain number of strikes that they can make without any explanation. And when you can provide a racially neutral explanation for why you struck a black person and say, well, you know, I didn't. There are some really ridiculous ones out there, you know their hair was too long or they had a child the same age as the person who's been any number of things that you can come up with. Yeah. A couple bigger questions. Besides the fact that jurors are excluded by prosecutors, there are other real reasons why there are so many fewer black people on jurors than there are in the populations. What are some of those reasons? Jury selection process starts with you have to show up. You know, you get summoned, you get summoned to come to court. There are real legitimate issues that folks might feel around economic hardship. It, will I lose my job if I show up? You know, even if I found part-time labor, will I? So that's an economic vulnerability. Then when you actually get there, there's the initial process by which a judge asks you, are you able to make a decision to put someone to death if it comes to that? And if you aren't able to, to answer affirmatively at that phase before the peremptory strike challenges that take place between the prosecutor and the defense, then you are automatically excluded from the trial. And we know through plenty of years of data that African-Americans and other populations as well are less likely and are less motivated to vote for a death penalty. So therefore, they're excluded even before the prosecutor goes through the process of sort of excluding the jurors and pruning down to the kind of jurors, juror pool that it wants to have. Since most prosecutions are plea bargains and they don't go to trial. How will changing, if we can change the composition of juries, how will that actually change justice in America, do you think? Punishments? I tend to think that one of the problems is that unless we're really willing to address the challenge of prosecutor discretion, then we're really not going to be able to have, we're not, we don't, we're not demonstrating the will to make the kinds of changes to our justice system. So ultimately, prosecutors will say, I need to be able to make these kinds of decisions based around instinct and strategy. That's their defense mm-hmm. for why they want to be able to maintain the ability to make peremptory strikes. I just don't, I, I feel like as a nation, 
we have to be really willing to tackle the hard problems, as we talked about with the plea bargain system. If 97% of the people who are who are actually convicted of crimes or actually in, this, in the federal system are, are convicted by way of plea bargain, then only 3% of those are actually going to trial. And in that 3%, we have to then deal with the juror exclusion. So is this really the justice system that we right. actually, or is this some kind of a plea system that we've and, created? And if, if a trial becomes less of an automatic uh, conviction, and you know, I know of no jurisdictions where the conviction rates are in the 90s for going to trial, and some of that is yeah. you don't take it to trial unless you think you can right. win. But if it becomes more of a question mark, then you would imagine it would filter down to plea bargaining becoming, you know, there's less of a sort of Damocles hanging over the accused's yeah. head. Yeah. yeah. It has to be tackled from both, from all different perspectives. So if there's a way to trick down that sort of justice from the Supreme Court's perspective, and at least in that, and that's creating more of a safeguard at that decision-making stage, which is jury selection. And I think that it becomes somewhat of a deterrent. If there's some way, and maybe it's that the Supreme Court says something like, you know what, you're going to have to, you have to, you're only going to get a certain number of strikes moving forward in, in certain cases. You, I don't know if that will do that, but they're going to reduce the number of, of potential peremptory strikes, or they're going to lower the threshold or lower the standard, you know, for finding um, evidence of discrimination that might be also what, what direction. Those can potentially be deterrents because I think the point you made earlier, which is that 1987, we're going to find evidence of discrimination of yeah. prosecutors. But now, are people really going to make and maintain records like that that can possibly be viewed by all and, and, and pulled apart? All it's really saying is don't keep records. Yeah. And, that's and, what, scary. and even if maybe it's not even conscious, maybe it's not even that these people have ill will in their hearts. But if you do an analysis and you show that ju- black jurors are still two or three times more likely to be excluded than white jurors, maybe we should address that. Well, I think that we should address it. But I think part of the challenge is that the prosecutors would argue that, listen, if you look at the other side, defense attorneys are doing the exact same thing on the I opposite know, end. but the argument against that is a defense attorney represents a defendant. A prosecutor is for the people. He doesn't... I know he wants to win, and I know the argument is you got to give me the tools to win, but it's the people versus Smith, right? Not you, prosecutor versus Smith. And if you're executing the will of the people, I mean, that's why the Supreme Court is weighing in on these things. Well, you know, this is these are... First of all, there's a couple things. There's, these are elected positions, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about elected positions... And we were talking about the fact that these are careers and we're talking about people who are being as prosecutors who are being judged in large measure around their success and their failure. And they're looked at. And what's the, 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 the reason that voters will often vote for them uh, is because of their record. Now, there are definitely some folks who are and I go back to what's happening in Dallas under this under this, uh, the, the, the district attorney in Dallas. Uh, his name is Craig Watkins. The work that's happening down there around exonerations, around really trying to look at use DNA analysis to root out wrongful convictions. I think when you are when you have courageous, motivated prosecutors who want to see change, and there are a lot, I don't doubt that there are lots of them out there. We need to hear more of their voices. We need to, we do need to hear more of their voices. I do think that there are ways to address the system, but ultimately. People are there's, these are careers, and often they're dealing with criminals, and they're dealing with what they consider to be people who are, you know, who need who have not didn't if they didn't commit this crime they committed some crime, or and if they don't stop them this time they'll do something else. So they see themselves enacting the will of the people by getting folks off the street who would otherwise be causing all sorts of mayhem. Now, do I agree with that? Probably not. Dax Devlin Ross first came to our attention when he wrote about black jury exclusion. In Virginia Quarterly Review last fall, that was in partnership with the Nation Institute's Investigative Fund. Also, he's working with the Nation Institute's Investigative Fund to cover the story of plea bargaining. And I should also say, just because Dax is such a nice guy and it's such a good cause, half of what he does, is it more than half? 
You could say about three quarters. Three quarters <laughs> of what he does. He works with an organization. I, I run an organization. Run an organization called After School All Stars, and they're doing a World Trade Center stair climbing event here in New York City, October 22nd. Climb starts at 5, 6 p.m. post climb party. Get all your climbing in in the hour. After School All-Stars, Arnold Schwarzenegger, what, he started the after- He founded the organization 23 years ago. Hot 97 is going to be sponsoring the event. They're going to be on the ones and twos. They're going to have a couple of their, their morning shows going to be there climbing. Yeah. We want people to come out. It's going to be fun. We interview a lot of journalists on the show. Very rarely do you have a plug <laughs> like this, but I want to give it to you. Thanks, Dax. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is fun, always. And now the spiel. Old rules. As a general rule of thumb. There's something Republicans hate. It's rules. Well, not all rules, actually. Huckabee likes God's rules. Trump likes the golden rule. He with the gold makes the rules. But they hate it when the rules grow to four syllables, because then you call them regulations. You get in and you change every aspect of regulations that are job killers. That was Jeb Bush. This is Chris Christie. We cut business taxes $2.3 billion, and we cut regulation by one-third of what my predecessor put in place. Cut the good regulations, the bad regulations. It doesn't matter. We just cut regulations. Here's Marco Rubio. We need to have a regulatory budget in America that limits the amount of regulations on our economy. And to pass that law, wait, wouldn't that technically itself be a regulation? Can you pass a regulation limiting regulations? And if you do, what if that's the regulation you limit? You know, if it seems like I'm being dyspeptic or perhaps a bit irregular over the war on regulation, know this. Some regulations are, of course, bad, dumb, wasteful, onerous, counterproductive. Which ones? Well, let me nominate a few that aren't. One of the regulations that I like is a regulation against salmonella in peanuts. Peanut salmonella sent the former CEO of the Peanut Corporation of America to 28 years in jail. Stuart Parnell's attorney said they will appeal the conviction and the sentence, saying it was tantamount to a life sentence. Well, it was a death sentence to the nine people who ate those tainted peanuts and didn't live. Now, I'm sure none of the candidates would take a stance that we should go easy on Stuart Parnell, whose mismanagement killed nine people. Yet the laws that would have caught the outbreak in time, those laws were against because we call them regulations. Today in the Wall Street Journal, Jeb Bush bylined an op-ed titled, How I'll Slash the Regulation Tax. Here, it begins. To understand what is wrong with the regulatory culture of the U.S. under President Obama, consider this alarming statistic. Wait, before we consider this statistic, I want to consider regulatory culture. That bothers me. I think it's a problem that we call every negative tendency a culture. I think it's more than a problem. I think it's a bit of a culture. Culture seems to make a problem sound more pervasive than it is, but really, it just makes the complaint less specific. Is it a bad regulation? Doesn't matter. It's regulatory culture. Anyway, I'll keep going on with the Jeb Bush op-ed, the op-Jeb, if you will. Here's the statistic he wanted to talk about. Today, according to the World Bank, not exactly a right-wing think tank, Jeb says, the U.S. ranks 46th in the world in terms of of ease of starting a business. That's unacceptable. 
Now, I bet Jeb Bush is a little pissed that the online version of the Wall Street Journal included a hyperlink to that study because it didn't prove him wrong. But when you click the link, the default setting on the web page does not show the rank of ease of starting a business. It just shows the overall rank of running a business. And the U.S. is seventh in the world in running a business. That tells me a couple things. That the ease of starting a business, we are 46 in that. It's not killing us overall. Also, if you look at the six countries ahead of us, Singapore, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Denmark, South Korea, Norway. Now, five of those six countries have a population that's less than the state of North Carolina. It's maybe easier to do business in such a small country than the United States country of 300 whatever million. But also, I would say that if we're seventh in overall business, but 46th in starting a business, maybe starting a business is not as important as Jeb Bush is saying it is. And look at some of the countries ahead of the United States in terms of starting a business. Moldova, Albania, Liberia, Russia going to say that starting a business is not a great proxy for a healthy economic system. By the way, I was looking at that list. Thanks, Wall Street Journal hyperlink. Did you know the United States is 61st in the ease of getting electricity? It's worse than Belize and Lebanon. I'd read the op Jeb on that. Okay, Jeb continues. Since January of 2009, the Obama administration has mired America's free market in a flood of creativity crushing and job killing rules. Okay, job killing. Unemployment, currently 5.1%. That's under the job killer Obama. When George W. Bush, brother of Jeb, left office, unemployment was 7.8%. But it's Obama whose regulations are the job killer. I know, I know. It's not fair to hang every failure of George W. Bush on Jeb Bush. But it does drive Jeb crazy. And that's fun to say couple more things. Here's Jeb going on in the op Jeb. According to the American Action Forum, since Mr. Obama took office, new regulations have resulted in an additional 443 million hours of paperwork each year for Americans. I understand why I put that in. It is annoying. There are over 300 million Americans. It's, a, it's an hour and a half more of paperwork a year. There are 9 million Americans who signed up for Obamacare. They're probably each doing at least 12 hours of paperwork. So that's like a quarter of the total. But yes, I understand the appeal of that. He's framing his argument as helping all of us. But then he gives away the game and he gets to this part of the op jeb. Quote, I promise to roll back many of the reckless and damaging rules promulgated under President Obama. As president, I will repeal the EPA's new rule extending jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act over millions of acres of private land, its regulation of carbon dioxide under the Clean Power Plan, and its new and costly coal ash standards for power plants. This isn't about saving paperwork. This is about loosening environmental standards. And, by the way, what terrible timing. What terrible, though typical in this election, bad timing for Jeb. Jeb's anti-regulation treatise comes out the day the head of Volkswagen resigns because good regulation tripped up corporate cheaters, polluters, foreigners spewing particulate into the American sky. And the EPA caught them. The EPA was working with outside groups, but the EPA had the budget and they had the technology to catch the wrongdoers. They had the muscle to threaten Volkswagen with a recall that could cost them $18 billion. Do you know Europe, Europe, rule-bound, over-regulated Europe is saying, thank God the U.S. has such forceful regulations in this matter. Now, I will admit, if it seems like I'm saying, so regulations are good, hey, 
The argument regulation's good is just as simplistic and reductive as the argument regulation's bad. But no one makes the argument regulation's good. They say, let's have the smartest rules we can have. Hell, both sides should say that. Both sides should live that. I would love to hear Democratic candidates give ground on the issue, to call out a few specific regulations that do not work, just to show that they're not against regulations. They're against bad, useless, onerous, counterproductive regulations. Because so many of these regulations are frustrating to everyday Americans, regular Americans. And I don't think one party should have a monopoly on this complaint I don't think we should allow one party to twist this sensible complaint into a Trojan horse of harmful rule changing. Though as far as that goes, in this particular case, there ought not to be a law. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has fought valiantly to define the slight head nod associated with the greeting, what's up? as a public domain shoulder and neck motion, not the proprietary possession of the head nod group, a subsidiary of SUP Inc. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, is advocating that the move where you fill your shampoo bottle with a little bit of water, so that last bit is like only 50% shampoo solution, but you use more than twice as much to make up for it. He's looking to classify that move as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The gist, you know we're having a live show, right? Go to slate.com slash NYC gist. Tuesday in the Bell House, Samantha B. headline guest, musical guest, someone you know and love that I can't say because they don't want to step on this guy's ticket sales in New York. I can't say too much. It's a good guest and all are just friends from cocktails to Is This Bullshit to Adam to Zoe to anyone, Matt Dix, everyone you've ever loved on The Gist. That's slate.com slash NYC Gist. If you're in the New York area, this is going to be a fun variety show. I hope to see you next Tuesday. The Gist, hoping to reclassify the high squeaky noise, the whinny that sometimes shows up in your nose after you sneeze and you wonder if other people can hear it or if it's just inside your head. We're looking to have that defined by the DSM-5 as an active symptom of paranoid personality disorder. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.